Known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth on the Guadalupe Radio Network in North Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. We now present here on the Guadalupe Radio Network a talk given by Father John Ricardo, a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and host of the Christ is the Answer radio program. Father Ricardo will be the speaker at the 13th Annual Summer Speaker Series event on Thursday, August 5th in the Grand Ballroom of the Irving Convention Center. All Guadalupe Radio Network listeners are invited to join us. For more information and to purchase your tickets, please visit SummerSpeakerSeries.com. That's SummerSpeakerSeries.com. Here now is Father John Ricardo. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. One of my favorite things to do as a priest is to journey with our brothers and sisters as they explore becoming Catholic in the RCIA program. The oddity is that oftentimes those who come into the church are the best educated Catholics that there are. It seems that what we need is something like RCIA for Catholics, for those of us who have grown up with the faith and have never really learned it. So I invite you to join those coming into the church as they learn about the beauty of our faith and hope as well that it will help to draw you ever closer to the God who is truth and love. The topic for tonight is uh, what's known as the prophetic vocation of woman, or what I subtitled, The Urgent Need for Authentic Feminism. Some of us may be shocked to know that the church promotes feminism. And the late Holy Father, Pope John Paul the Great, was continually calling for either what he called a new feminism or an authentic feminism, as opposed to kind of the radical feminism, which in many ways is simply something like Marxist philosophy gone haywire, or applied to the relationships between men and women. That might be a bit simplistic, but that's really what it is in its radical state. And as I mentioned at Mass and in the article for tonight, just trying to get us ready for the evening, this is either the best or the worst-kept secret that the Church has. I'm continually impressed by how many women and men who begin to read the Church's documents, particularly the Church's documents, whether it's uh, this is the 20th anniversary of the Pope's apostolic letter on the dignity and the vocation of women, whether it's his letter to women, Things which no one would ever see, unfortunately. Even though it's out there, it's available for people to read. Pastors, associates, deacons, DREs, everybody should be promoting this. No one's ever exposed to it. You'll never see it in the Catholic school. It's just something which is totally unknown to most people. Then they begin to read it, or we begin to read it, and we go, why hasn't anybody ever told me this? Why has this never been something to which I was exposed? But instead we kind of get snippets and sound bites from the media or from people who have as a goal or as an agenda to challenge the church and to reject the church's teachings on different things. And that's our source for our information about what it is that the church says about women. The goal in doing this is really to begin a conversation, not to end one. There is an incredible apostolate called Endow, which is an acronym for educating on the nature and the dignity of woman. It started out in Denver. It's here operative in the Archdiocese of Detroit. It's an incredible outreach to women So the goal of tonight is to get people to begin to think and then into something like the Endow Outreach and also to make people aware we're going to do a one-day day day of reflection here on September 27th 
Because all throughout the country, hopefully, in different archdioceses and dioceses, there will be talks dedicated to looking at the Pope's letter on the dignity of woman because it is the 20th anniversary of it. And Teresa Tamio is going to be with us that day, Bishop Flores, myself, and uh, a woman named Erica Latham, who's a young student over in Rome who's working on her doctorate in bioethics. So we're going to be kind of given a whole series of talks that day, just breaking open again some of the things which tonight we'll touch upon in brief, but this is the appetizer to the meal. Let me say a word as we start about prophets and crises. In a time of crisis, especially as we read salvation history and are exposed to it in Scripture, but also as we look at history as, uh, as it's taken place since the closing of the canon of the Scriptures, God clearly raises up prophets to speak to his people, to call them back to truth and away from sin. And over and over again, there seems to be two things in particular that he's speaking about, especially in Scripture. One is he's trying to call people back to his love, which we forget so easily, depending on how familiar you are with the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, you might think of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet who's really set apart by the Lord to call people back to the primacy of his love. That's one thing which prophets are called to do. But then they also are raised up by the Lord often to speak about the attack on the dignity of the human person, which God has created out of his own love in his own image and likeness. And again, if you think of Old Testament prophets, Someone like Amos might come quickly to mind, who God raises up to challenge people who are trampling on one another. The crisis today, or the crises today, are many. But I think that one of the ways to encapsulate the crisis of our day and age is despair. I think that's one of the reasons why Pope Benedict chose as his second encyclical letter to write about hope. Many people just live with despair. We may not say that, but it's kind of a practical despair in that we really don't know what we're living for. There's really no sense of a goal. There's no sense of a purpose other than what the media is constantly throwing at me or what different people are constantly throwing at me. I don't want to bash the media, don't get me wrong. But what else would I live for other than fame, pleasure, power, all the things which are constantly being presented to me in, in so many different carefully and creatively and attractively presented ways. I think so people really live with an actual hope in God who has created everything, who is Lord of history, who has an end in mind, and who made me and you for a purpose. If we did, we'd live very different lives. Many people seem to live, we can't know that because we don't have access to their interior, but they seem to live either thinking that there's no God at all, or if there is one, he isn't very good. Or if he is any good, he's not all that powerful. And the classic excuse for that, or the classic illustration of that, is the suffering of the innocent. That becomes the accusation against either an all-powerful or an all-good God. Pope John Paul, on many occasions, wrote and spoke about what he called the prophetic vocation of woman, hence the title for tonight. A vocation that he says is entrusted to women in a very particular way, and that enables them to speak to our world in a challenging but loving way, both about God's love and about the dignity of the human person. So these two things which prophets are continually raised up to speak about. In his letter on the dignity and the vocation of woman, the Pope wrote, a special kind of prophetism is the word he uses belongs to women in their femininity. And what I want to try to do tonight is to look at what this prophetism might be. Let me issue a couple disclaimers as we start. I'm a man. <laughs> so I realize that, like, puts me right in the middle of the bullseye. I'm hoping nobody brought any fruit. And I realized that, you know, even this afternoon as I was praying and working through what I wanted to share with us tonight, I know my immediate reaction when I might hear or read women speak about men. But at the same time, I thought immediately of a woman who writes in Denver named Sister Prudence Allen who wrote this incredible essay on spiritual fatherhood. And I felt like the Spirit just took me to that because 
as I read it and as I go back to it, it's just truth. So here's a woman who is able to write very incisively about men because she knows revelation. So how is it that a man can speak about women? How could the Pope speak about women? Because of revelation. We oftentimes kind of fall into the fallacy that unless I have the experience, I can't really speak about something. That's obviously untrue, or we would never be able to speak to anybody who's really struggling with things that we've never struggled with. I would have to be an addict to help an addict. That's just not true. Experience helps oftentimes, but it also clouds me oftentimes. So we're able to speak about some of these things, and especially some of the delicate things that we might speak about tonight, because of the fact that God has revealed it. He's revealed it to us. More importantly than me being a man, I think, is... The challenge is we're swimming in a culture that sees the relationship of men and women through a very distorted lens. It sees our relationship between the sexes through a lens of sin and through a very long history of use, abuse, exploitation. That's usually, not always, but usually on the man's side. But women are not innocent in this because women can do those things too to men, but oftentimes women end up conniving in being exploited. And all you got to do is look at the front page of some of the magazines as you're checking out at the supermarket to see women doing just that. They're allowing themselves to be exploited, which does nothing either for them, for other women, or certainly for the men who they're exploiting themselves to. So we have this really ugly, checkered history. The good news is there's grace, and that the life of the Holy Spirit within us is able to help us overcome that conflictual relationship which is often present between us. We also have a hard time, I think, understanding how two or more things can be both equal and different. In fact, radical feminism has said that that's something like a euphemism that the church and other people use for justifying keeping women down. But things can clearly be equal and distinct because the grounding of all reality is the Trinity. And the Trinity is three persons, absolutely equal, who are entirely distinct. Therefore, the Trinity has within itself this understanding of equality and distinctiveness. So we should be able to understand that this is no euphemism for keeping anybody down. It's just a reality that we're equal, but we're different. That doesn't mean either one's better. It just means we're different. Finally, as a disclaimer, this is challenging to speak about because the points that we're going to make oftentimes tonight anyway are subtle ones. Hopefully I'll try to make this relevant and relatable because I think it's exciting. But I'm also aware that when I'm reading something, I want a book that's got ten things that I can do to become a better priest. (laughs) You know, I get to the point, come on, let's go, I'm a busy man. As opposed to, no, you just need to be quiet and to reflect and to think and to learn what it means to be. I'm like, what what that means? What does it mean to be? No, I want to do something. And this is not about doing anything. This is about being tonight. So I'll just warn you that in advance. I have three goals for the night. First, I want to look at three terms so that we know what we're talking about. And then I want to try to apply them to the two stories of creation that we find in Genesis. Second, I want to see what it might be that would make a woman what the Pope considers more fit to be a prophet in this age for this crisis than a man. You're already tuning out. (laughs) And third, I want to discuss why this is so relevant for us tonight. So an important point to keep in mind as we're going along The Pope used to talk on frequent occasions about what he would consider an adequate anthropology. What's an adequate anthropology? Anthropology, huh? Study of man. Yeah, all right. Okay, study of the human person. So, in essence, what he's saying is that 
over the last number of decades and centuries even, there have been all sorts of fields and specializations which have tried to compartmentalize and to cut up the human person. And whether it's social sciences or whatever different uh, science psychology it might be that's trying to look at man or woman or all of humanity, whatever. And they claim oftentimes to have the exhaustive understanding of what it means to be human. So Freud's got his own understanding of anthropology, huh? Marx has his own understanding of anthropology. There's all these different understandings of what it is that drives us. The Pope would say, and the Church would say very clearly, that none of those can be sufficient. They're all helpful, to be clear. They're all very helpful, or at least they can be. But they can't be it. Anything which doesn't take into account what God reveals in Revelation, in the Scriptures, about how we are made and what we're made for, can't be a sufficient understanding of what it means to be human. So anything that pushes God out of the picture instantly ruins or distorts our understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. John Paul writes in one of his encyclicals, when you eclipse the creator, the creature disappears. And that's what we're doing right now. We're pushing God out of the picture. You push God out of the picture, which means you push the reality that you and I are created in the image and the likeness of God. And what are you left with? Not much more than hormones or the will to power or these other things which drive us. So we need what he calls an adequate anthropology, which can draw on what we find in the behavioral or the social sciences, but it combines them with what we understand with Revelation. John Paul was constantly reading. He read more in a week probably than I will read in my life. He's constantly reading. He's reading philosophy, he's reading psychology, he's reading science. There's a craving to know. Benedict's the same way. There's a craving to know, as opposed to, you know, I have my own little narrow view and I don't want anything else to get in there and interrupt it. Or I don't have any time or I won't make any time to learn. He's constantly seeking to learn and then to integrate that into what it is that God has revealed in Scripture. So this is no narrow-minded, we don't have room for, you know, what we learn in, in the secular, quote-unquote, world out there. He's always looking at that, or was always looking at that. This quest for an adequate anthropology is what becomes the foundation of what is known as the theology of the body, which some of us may be familiar with. It's a five-year Bible study that he did in the Vatican from 1979 to 1984, which has done a tremendous amount of healing in many young people and married couples. Terms, three terms. First term is prophet. We're going to speak about the prophetic vocation of woman. Helps to know what a prophet is. I say prophet, you think John the Baptist. I say prophet, you think Elijah. Okay, so the first two people coming to my mind are men wearing camel's hair out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey. Doesn't do much for me. They got bad teeth, a lousy diet, not much of a wardrobe, and they're living in the middle of nowhere, predicting the future. That's not a prophet. I mean, those men were prophets, but that's not a prophet. A prophet isn't someone who forecasts the future, although that happens sometimes. A prophet in a secular sense means someone who speaks on someone else's behalf, and a prophet in a spiritual sense and in a Christian sense means someone who speaks for God. More concretely, somebody who mediates God's will to me or his mind. That's a prophet. Second term is vocation. It's a word that we throw around all the time. We pray for vocations, and when we pray for vocations, we immediately think of men in collars and women in habits, and that's great. We need vocations to the priesthood and religious life, but that's not a vocation. A vocation is just a call. That's the simplest understanding of a vocation. But I think it's key to realize that a vocation has two dimensions to it. There's God's call, and then there's my response to his call, which means that our freedom is involved here. So one thinks of Jonah, or at least I think of Jonah immediately. God calls, Jonah runs. Wrong response. It's only half of the dimension or the half of the totality of what it means to be involved in a vocation. 
most of us could say the same thing in our lives as regards the call from God to follow him, the call from Jesus to each of us to be his disciple. It's like, okay, but not now, later, having too much fun, maybe when I'm about to die, then I'll repent. So this reality of a vocation is God's call to me and my response. My response, either positively or negatively, either one of them is a response. Jonah responds to God. He responds poorly. And the second time, he responds positively. Last term that's significant for the discussion that we'll get into tonight is genius. Pope John Paul II, on several occasions, identified what he calls the feminine genius, or the genius of woman. He's not talking about intelligence, although it's certainly the case that oftentimes women are far more intelligent than men. We prove that as men constantly. If you don't think so, ask your wife. (laughs) But he's not talking about intelligence here. There's one of the definitions of genius which Webster lists, which is the particular character or the essential spirit of a nation, a place, an age, etc., That's what he's talking about here, the particular character of something. He's talking here about the character of woman. He thinks there's a particular character of woman. Not that women are characters. There's a particular character or an essential spirit that God has given to woman. All right, those are the three terms. So let's try to do something quick on an adequate anthropology and look at the two passages in Genesis which talk about, which reveal to us the stories of creation. You all knew there's two stories of creation, right? Everybody confidently knew that? You could all tell me where they are. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Makes it easy. All right? First two chapters of the book. Two stories of creation. First is in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Two points that I want to stress here. Then we're going to look at Genesis 2, second story of creation. Two points I want to stress there. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The word here, man, is let's make the human person in our image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth." So the first point being revealed to us in Genesis 1 is that the human person is created in the image and the likeness of God. This should be like really basic for us, but it's something that we need to retrieve. It's what makes us unique from all the rest of creation. Everything has been created by God, and yet you and I are alone created in his image and likeness. That means we are absolutely special to God. God didn't become an angel to save angels. He hasn't become a baby seal to save baby seals. He hasn't become a one-horned rhinoceros to save the one-horned rhinoceroses. He became a man to save humanity. He's done nothing like that for anyone else. We are, and I don't know why, if for no other reason simply looking at my own life, privileged to be loved by God in no other way, or in a way that does not compare with all the rest of creation. This is not speciesism, which some people try to accuse Christianity of teaching, or Judaism of teaching. This is what God reveals to us. This doesn't mean that we now can just, you know, pillage the earth and exploit animals and do whatever we want with what it is that God has created. That's not the point. Clearly we can't do that. God gives us dominion to be exercised as he exercises dominion, which is he cares for his creation. Therefore, you and I have to care for what it is that's been entrusted to us. That's why stewardship of creation becomes an important part of the church's social teaching. 
But it is to say that we're very different from all the rest of the animals. We're made on the same day as the animals, and yet God breathes his spirit into us, as we're going to see in Genesis 2, and he doesn't do that with the rest of the animals. There's a unique relationship between us and God. This is both a great gift and an incredible task. Second point that's being revealed, which we also need to find a way to retrieve or to grow in our understanding of, is that the human person created in the image and likeness of God exists as both male and female, which is to say that we are very different. And this is good. It's good. It's not an obstacle. It's not something that's supposed to be overcome. It's not a barrier to communion and love. It's the means, in fact, for communion and love. God has willed that the human person would exist as both male and female. In one place, the Pope writes that we are two different incarnations of what it means to be human, which is to say, for the topic tonight, there is something unique about woman. This is one of those subtle things which we need to go reflect on and grasp more deeply because the world in which we're living tends to be a world which is normed by men. And it's not just normed by men, it's normed by men who have a distorted image of what it means to be a man. And then what women oftentimes do is try to imitate what men are trying to do, which is live as distorted men, thinking that if I can just do what you're doing, I'll have the good life. When the men don't have the good life. In all of this, the challenge for all of us in all of this is we need to have God show us what does it mean to be a man, what's it mean to be a woman? Because I'm continually bombarded by all these distorted, false views of what authentic manhood looks like or what authentic womanhood looks like. And the way I'm going to learn what it really looks like is by diving into Scripture and to seeing what it is that God's revealed to me and then how that's been understood in the church. The world in which we live oftentimes tries to say that we are basically interchangeable parts, that we are the same except for body parts. That's simply not true. Our bodies are not prisons. They're not machines. They're not something that we happen to have. Our bodies, the Pope would say, are quote-unquote like sacraments of our persons. Sacraments of visible sign of an invisible reality. He would say that the body is something like that about the person. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. So the body is not insignificant at all. But we live in a culture which tends to see the body merely as something to be used, to be exploited, to be forever kept young, to be forever kept beautiful. I mean, give up. It's not going to work. I mean, it ain't going to work for crying out loud. We're going to get older and older and older. I mean, that's just reality. I still work out every day, but I used to run every day, and there was a guy in the seminary who used to look at me and said, all it's going to mean is you're going to look better in a casket than me. Who cares? So, I mean, it's great to exercise. It's great to be in shape. That's all important. But if we're doing it because we're trying to preserve youthfulness or beauty, which is exterior beauty, which is fleeting, as opposed to working on true beauty, which is interior, then we're wasting our time. But from what we're looking at out there oftentimes, and this is especially true for young women, they are bombarded with images that unless you look this way, well, that's just unfortunate. And that's a lie. That means your dignity, your value, your worth comes from something exterior, which is not true. Your dignity, your value, your worth comes from who you are. And who you are is created in the image and likeness of God. Who you are as a woman is a daughter of the king. Everything else is really irrelevant. And the more and more that we grow in our security and being the father's children, all that other stuff just falls off us and we just don't worry about it. It's those people who are insecure, and we're all insecure in some way, huh? But it's to the degree that we're insecure that we're trying to find an identity in those things which are not real identities. When our real identity is something which was given to us by God, and if we would only let him tell us and convince us of it, which his spirit wants to do in us, we would be so much freer. 
So that second point, we are through and through, male and female, it's a good thing. Second story of creation, Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him or suitable for him. Matching him is actually the word, facing him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, it's important to realize here, this is something like an inspired poem which is trying to communicate truths to us. Genesis is not being written to be an anthropology book or a science book. It's revelation. It's true. It's possible for things to be true without being literally true. Hallmark proves that over and over again. That's what poetry does. Poetry speaks truth using poetic imagery. And that's what Scripture is doing at times. It's one of the reasons we get into so much trouble reading Scripture. Where sometimes we think it's to be understood literally when it's only revealing truth. Other times it is to be taken literally and it's revealing truth. It's always revealing truth. Sometimes it's not literally true. Because the Bible is not a book. It's a library with lots of different books with different genres in it. And because we don't know the Bible as well as we should, oftentimes we end up reading each book as if it's the same genre. But it's not. It's like a Sunday newspaper. Half of it I throw out which is what most of us do with the Bible, too. It's like, I don't like that section, we'll just toss that. But I have no need for the one ad, so I just kind of pitch half the paper, you know. Real estate doesn't do me much good. So, I mean, we just sift through things, but as we're reading the paper, you know, we read the sports section one way, we read the weather another way, we read the editorials one way, we read the obits one way. They're all different genres, they're all different styles, and we've learned to read them all differently because we understand what they're saying. We need to do the same thing with Scripture. We hope you're enjoying this presentation by Father John Ricardo and we'll return to his talk shortly. Father Ricardo will be the featured speaker at the Summer Speaker Series event benefiting KTH 910 AM on Thursday, August 5th in the Grand Ballroom of the Irving Convention Center. Tickets are $75 each and include food and wine and other drinks. To purchase your tickets, please visit summerspeakerseries.com. That's summerspeakerseries.com. And now we return to Father John Ricardo's presentation here on KTH 910 AM. So in this inspired poem in Genesis 2, there's again two points being revealed, or two things that I want to stress that are being revealed. There's many things being revealed. First is that until this passage, seven times God has said it's good. Maybe we've forgotten that, but you know, after everything he makes, he goes, it's good. Morgan Freeman does this and, you know... What's the movie with Jim Carrey? Yeah, Bruce Almighty. You know, it's good. Okay? I mean, that's what God's saying over and over again. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Now, all of a sudden, Genesis 2, whoa, it's not good. That's supposed to get our attention. That's nothing incidental there. That's most significant that something is not good. What isn't good? Man's alone. Why isn't it good that man's alone? He's got no one to love. In a great, real short sentence, the Pope writes, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, 
if he does not participate intimately in it. Life without love is meaningless. So it's not good that man's alone. So God does something. He's going to provide a helper who is going to tell him how to find happiness. (laughs) And that's her prophetic role. And I mean that. We laugh, but I mean that. The woman is going to tell something to the man without opening her mouth. Which again, I mean. We laugh because of the distorted relationship that we live with. And the relationship of the sexes, which is marked by sin, by sarcasm, by all the things that are involved in our relationships. But there was a time when that was not so. There was a time when men and women never saw in the other anything other than the reality that I am supposed to love you and you are supposed to love me. And there was no sin, there was no selfishness, there was no lust, there was no shame, there was no use. And what the Pope says is, though that age is gone, on one hand, you and I still have access to it by his grace, which enables us to see in the other now not an object to be used, but a person to be loved. Would that you and I would really get into practicing that. So this second point that I want to stress here has to do with this word helper. To our modern ears, helper doesn't sound like all that honoring of a title. It's not good, I'll make a helper for you. (laughs) She'll get the remote, (laughs) trim the cigar, hand the slippers. I mean, that's not at all, obviously, what's implied here, but that's how some people will twist and understand it. This is a most important word in Scripture. The, the Hebrew word is azer, E-Z-E-R, is how we would transliterate it into English. It's found 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 times it refers to God. This is divine aid being given to man. This is an incredible gift being given to the man. Of course, it kind of begs the question, and you have to be careful with this one, what does the man need help for? <laughs> if you want to actually talk to your spouse tonight, don't answer that. Because some of us would say, well, everything, obviously. (laughs) But what does the man need help for? He needs help to be human. Because on your own, and on my own, I can't really be human. Because to be human means to be involved in a relationship of love. Because I'm created in the image and likeness of God. And the most basic thing that you and I can say about God is that God is three. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose existence is, always has been, always will be, a communion of reckless love whereby each person holds nothing back but pours everything out to the other one. That's God's inner life. The fact that you and I are created in his image and likeness means the only single way you and I are ever going to find happiness is to live like that. It's to love sincerely and to be loved. Actually, it's the other way around. It's first to be loved and then to love. So woman is both like man in that she's human, she's created in the image and likeness of God, and she's unlike man in that she is his sexual opposite. And as one person wrote, men and women are as different from each other as they can be and still both be human. And that's profoundly true. We know that in our relationships with each other. We just see reality very differently, and that's how God intended it to be. Unfortunately, it often becomes a point of contention and conflict, but it's supposed to be something which works together for the good of each other and in a particular way for the good of the family which a mother and a father are raising. All right, let's try to apply a couple of the terms that we looked at earlier to Genesis 1 and 2. So in these passages, what's being said? What's being prophesied, if you will, by the woman to the man? Two things. First, God loves you, son. That's what's being said. God loves you. That's why I'm here. Because if he didn't love you, he wouldn't have made me. 
But he does love you, and he wants you to find fulfillment, which you can only find by being in communion. And so he has made me, which, by the way, for the woman, is also the only way she can find fulfillment is by being in that relationship as well. So God loves him. He's the one who made the woman. That's the point, poetically, of the saying that she's been fashioned out of his rib. It's to say that she's of the same stuff as he is. They're equal, absolutely equal. And the image of God that's seen in Genesis 2 is like the image of a father presenting his daughter to a man for marriage saying to the man, this is my pride and my joy. You had better love her like I love her. And you better care for her like I care for her. That's how this is being portrayed and revealed to us. Second thing that's being said is that the man and the woman both are made for love. So first thing that God loves you, that's why I'm here. Second thing, you're made for love. This is revealed in the fact that this is the first time that man speaks in the scriptures. We might miss that if we don't familiarize ourselves with what it is that's being revealed to us in Genesis if we don't read Genesis. But the first time that the human person speaks in Scripture is right here in Genesis 2. You know, God says to the man, you know what, son, it's not really good. You're all alone. I'm going to do something for this. I'll make you a helper. And then what's he do? He makes animals. You think God's sitting there going, what can I do now? Let's try the hippo. (laughs) No, that didn't work. Pterodactyl. He'll love that. You can fly. No, that didn't work. T-Rex. A horse. Shetland pony. And finally he goes, I don't know what I'm going to do. Puts the man to sleep. Of course not. You know, this is kind of like, to me, God's playfulness. And he does this often in our lives. I think he does it in my life all the time. He says, something's wrong, and I'm just going to let you experience that a little bit more deeply right now. (laughs) And then after I've just kind of wallowed in that for a little while, then he fulfills it. That's what he does with the man, you know. So he tells the man, something's wrong. It's not good. You're alone. And then what's he do? He deepens his sense of being alone. And then finally, he makes woman. And he presents woman, and now for the first time in the scriptures, man speaks, and he's like, finally, this one at last, exclamation point, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in naming her, don't miss this, he names himself. He had no name before this. In identifying her, he's identified him. He says, this one shall be called woman, for out of her man she has been taken. This is the first time he's named. So it's not like he's naming her like he's naming the animals. That's not happening here at all. In understanding who she is, he understands who he is. In understanding who he is, he understands I'm made for love. I'm made for communion. Therefore, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman knew this. The last verse in Genesis 2 says they were naked and they had no shame. And the Pope in his Theology of the Body goes on and on about this, about there was this unbroken gaze or this incredible capacity to gaze upon the other with nothing but love in Eden before the fall. There was no competition. There was no lust. There was no use. There was no manipulation. There was nothing other than I know in looking at you that I'm made to love you and I know in looking at you that I'm made to receive your love for me. I know about you, but I can only kind of long for what that would have been. That's why I want to slap Adam and Eve, who have ruined so much for all of us. But Jesus, and the Pope makes a point of this in the theology body, gives us access to that. We're able to overcome the inclinations that we have to be selfish. Okay, that's what's being said. How is all this being said? The answer here, I think, is so subtle that we miss it. It's being said by her presence, without opening her mouth, By just being there in front of the man, these two things are said to him. Her mere standing in front of him tells him, God loves you, and you are made to love, son, and to be loved. 
One person wrote that in being given to the man by God, woman awakens in him the mystery of his fundamental vocation, which is also her own vocation, which is to love and to be loved. And that's the fundamental call of every human person. The man on his own could never have learned this. He could never have learned that he's made for communion and that he can only find fulfillment in communion. Why? Because again, man is created in the image and likeness of God. And the most basic thing we know about God is God is three. So being a person, the Pope writes, means striving towards self-realization, which can only be achieved through a sincere gift of self. The model for this interpretation of the person, the Pope says, is God himself as Trinity, as a communion of persons. To say that man is created in the image and likeness of God means that he is called to exist for others, to become a gift. Now this sounds a bit out there to some of us, perhaps a little abstract, so let's try to make it a little bit more concrete. The woman's telling the man how to find happiness. And we all want happiness. That's why this is so incredibly relevant. Scripture is revealing to you and me how the happiness that we crave and that we long for is truly found. And it's not found by getting or by taking or by having. It's found by giving. That is so contrary to everything that we hear in the culture in which we live. Or at least to most of the things that we hear. I grew up with the who says you can't have it all commercial. Great taste and low carbs. <laughs> Happiness doesn't come from anything other than giving. It comes from loving and being loved. It's not like we're just supposed to exist and constantly pour ourselves out and not get anything back. If we did that, we would die exhausted. But it comes from trying to live in authentic, sincere relationships where we truly seek to outdo each other in kindness. That's happiness. That's the happy marriage. That's the happy friendship. That's the happy parish. That's a happy school, a workplace, a culture. That's happiness. Where our goal is not to keep score. Our goal is to outdo the other in love. That is real happiness. That's what goes on in the Trinity. That's what heaven is like. And you and I, even though we're living in a world which is so tinged by sin and has so many issues, can do what we can to put that into play in our own lives. So the ever-increasing experience of pleasure, which often simply ends up in either despair, addiction, or both, can't lead me to happiness. The accumulation of things can't make me happy. Wealth can never make me happy. It can make my life easier, to be sure. can't make me happy. You can steal it. You can, you know, you can key my car. I can park it far away in the corner of the parking lot, and you can still run into it just to make me mad. Things will never make me happy. Nothing wrong with things, but they can't suffice. They're not sufficient because man without love cannot find fulfillment. Life is meaningless without love, which is why there's so much despair in the world because so few people really experience love with God, in their marriage, with friends. The crisis is a crisis of love. That's why the task that is before us is to build a civilization of love. And the Pope says that woman is particularly suited or is more fit than man to awaken us to this reality. You know, when Jesus says in the gospel that he who would lose his life will find it and he who would seek to find his life will lose it, he's not talking about if you really want to be somebody like one of the spiritually elite, you're going to live this way. He's talking to every single human and saying, if you really want to find like life, you have to live this way. You have to lose your life. You have to pour yourself out for others. This isn't for those who want to be in the upper echelon of the church. This is for those who simply want to be authentically human. You want to be authentically human? Give it. Give what? Give yourself. And be in relationships where you're receiving from another, himself or herself, authentically. That's how you'll find happiness. And, you know, I don't know about you, but this is so clear from my experience in life. The unhappiness in my life 
comes from relationships which have gone sour, and they've gone sour because they were less than sincere. On my part, on their part, on whosoever part. Because we enter in, or we end up using each other, or we hurt each other, or we didn't know what relationships were all about, and so we've got all these scars. Thanks be to God, God heals. Jesus is the divine physician. Everybody else, no offense to anybody who's a doctor, you're a practicing physician. God is the physician. You practice the best you can. He's the only one who can heal. And he can heal however deep the scars are in my life or in yours. And he can awaken me to the reality of his love for me, which can then enable me to love others. And that's the order. So what is it about woman that makes her more fit for this, according to the Pope? More fit to play the prophet? The answer, he says, is what he calls her genius, which again is not the intellect, which is not at all to diminish woman's intellect by all means. It's this essential character or trait. So the Pope argues that there is not only a prophetism in woman that speaks of this, but that there's something distinctive in woman that makes her more fit for revealing to the world that life and happiness and fulfillment come from loving and being loved, from relationships and not from power or from things. Even science, huh? all that we know in biology, would tell us that sexuality is not wholly material. That's not H-O-L-Y, wholly material. That's entirely material. The body is not an instrument, nor is it merely a biological fact. The body reveals the person. It says something. It's a kind of sacrament of the person in that it is the visible manifestation of an invisible reality, which is the hidden interior of the person. I told you this was going to be subtle. And here's the part which I think requires for some of us, because we might hear it with less than the ears that I think the Lord wants us to hear it. The Pope would say that a woman's body says something about who a woman is. And this is an amazing reality, which this culture is constantly trying to diminish or to denigrate. In essence, a woman's body says that a woman is able to make room for another in a way that a man never can. She's able to be in an intimate communion with another person in a way that man can't. This being able to make room for another person, this special capacity for communion, gives rise to an attitude towards human beings that profoundly marks a woman's personality. This is her genius, the Pope says. As one author put it, such physical makeup marks every woman's capacity to love, whether or not she ever receives male sexual activity, or whether or not she ever bears children. The point is, thanks to the unity of matter and spirit, all women have a potential to be close to other persons in a way that no one could ever duplicate. Thus, and here's the point, women have something to teach men about love. See, there's supposed to be something that marks a woman's personality to realize that in a way that a man has to struggle with, that any time a woman sees another person, she should know, because of the fact that she is able to make room for another, that there's no way that that person can be a thing, because that person was carried under the heart of a mother, whereas a man doesn't get that. This is not to say that women can't objectify men or that men can't get beyond objectifying. This is to say that there's supposed to be something profoundly, deeply within a woman which finds it very difficult to instrumentalize people, which is what this culture badly needs to be recalled on because our culture so easily instrumentalizes the sick, the elderly, the handicapped, children, all those who aren't productive or all that efficient because our preoccupation is with doing and not with being. And what happens in replicating the distorted image of what it means to be a man is you buy into or I buy into this mentality which 
sees everybody through the lens of what they can do, which diminishes their value. But my dignity and your dignity doesn't come from what I can do. This is why we find it so difficult when we're sick. You're laid up for two weeks with the flu. You come back from surgery, you can't do anything for a month. You know, you're put into a senior home for a little while for recovery. And we get frustrated. Why? Because I can't do anything. Because everything continually tells me that unless I'm being productive, there's really no purpose for my life. That's not true. In fact, when someone's suffering, they actually may have more purpose than anybody else because they're able to share in the passion of the Lord and can do something with it. That's another topic for another night. But that's just a mentality which is so rooted in us. I mean, it's rooted in me. When I can't do anything, I go bonkers. It's a struggle for me to enjoy leisure. And it is for many people. Because I've been raised that if I'm not doing something right now, well, then there's something wrong with me. And and many men struggle with this, and many women struggle with this. I need to be active. But the Pope, and I find this to be most annoying, identifies the root of the culture of death as an inordinate preoccupation with efficiency. (laughs) That would be me. Not a preoccupation with efficiency, an inordinate preoccupation with efficiency. A disordered interest in being efficient. That is, eyes which see everything through the lens of being efficient. And that's many of us. We went through one of those personality profiles a couple years ago. I was with a staff that I was working with, and my personality profile sums up in the expression, when you come talk to me, be brief and be gone. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's really great, you know. (laughs) But I I know that. I mean, it's something that I have to overcome constantly. I know that's one of my temperaments, which is not real good for ministry. You know, I mean, that should be pretty obvious. Now, we'll leave it at that, okay? (laughs) So women have something to teach men about love. But this isn't something that happens automatically. That's why this is a vocation. There's a call here from God, but it's something that's got to be responded to in freedom. And I realize that what we just went through is very condensed, okay? Let's try to look quickly here at some of the relevance of all this for us. The last goal of the night. In a letter that the Pope wrote on the gospel of life, John Paul wrote that the tragic result of the eclipse of God that is taking place at such a widespread level in the modern world is the loss of a sense of man, of the human person. When God is forgotten, the creature grows unintelligible. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he's somehow reduced to being a thing. That is so clearly so many dimensions of our world. How do you think pornography works? It's the largest moneymaker in the world. This is no peripheral thing. It thrives on the diminishment of a human person to the level of a thing. The human person becomes concerned only with doing and using all kinds of technology. He busies himself with programming, controlling, and dominating life and death. By living as if God does not exist, man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. That's our culture. God's been pushed aside because God's been pushed aside. We don't know who we are because we don't know who we are. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing because we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We live for things which are visceral. Power, pleasure, prestige, titles, whatever. But they don't work. So what do we do? We end up killing ourselves. You judge a tree by its fruit. The fruit of this tree of Western culture in the last 50 years is beyond rotten. I mean, how do we not recognize that? It's beyond rotten. That's why I find that study that came out of London recently to be so provocative. The happiest people in the world that this study found are people who are religious, who pray, who believe in God. And the more someone prays, the more someone goes to church, the happier they are. Why? Because God all of a sudden is not eclipsed anymore. And by God coming back into the picture, all of a sudden the human person learns, oh, wow, there's a plan. I'm not just thrown into existence into the world. God loves me. I'm here for a reason. 
I mean, I know it, but I'm here for a reason. He made me with a point, with an end in mind. The end in mind is to share in his own life forever. I'm going somewhere. I'm not just randomly walking around the earth until you know my days are over. I'm going somewhere. My life's a pilgrimage here. I'm heading for home. This isn't home yet. I'm going to get home. It gives order to my life. It gives direction to my life. And it's not a fairy tale I'm believing because I know the person who's done this. I know the Lord. I've got reasons to believe. When we don't have faith, that is to say we don't have a friendship with God, what do we live for? We live for all the things that the world around us is living for and the world around us is not all that happy. Entertained? Yes. Amused? By all means. Distracted? You better believe it. Happy? Not many people. So we just keep trying to buy more things or to see more places or to be with more people in the hopes that we'll find happiness. It won't work. So both the sciences and scripture together tell us that woman is equipped in a special way to help to address this crisis. This is a culture desperately awaiting the prophetism of woman. A prophetism that speaks of God and of his love for each and every human person. A prophetism that speaks to the human person about the purpose of life, which is love, not power, not pleasure. A prophetism for which woman is especially gifted because of her body, which says something about who she is. That is, she's someone who can make room for another prior to any other considerations of usefulness. task for women, it seems, or at least one task, is not to leave this genius at home. Please don't misunderstand that what the Pope's saying is that what makes a woman to be great is that a woman can have children and that her honor is simply that she can be a mother. That's not what he's saying, although that's certainly not insignificant at all. What the Pope's saying is that this genius which marks a woman because of her body, which is a revelation of her person, which is able to make room for another, is something which needs to be brought into every sphere of life. Corporate life is by and large, again, normed by men, and it's normed by distorted men. Would that corporate life was really a genuine structure where men and women, as they both are in the way God made them, could lend true vision to what it is that life is supposed to be about. So the task is to awaken the culture from this inordinate preoccupation with efficiency and productivity to keep us from depersonalizing civilization. And speaking of the prophetic vocation of woman, John Paul the Great appealed to women to reject the temptation to imitate a distorted masculinity, and to be for the world prophets, to speak about the priority of love, to do this by putting into action, in as many ways as are imaginable, her feminine genius. That is, her sensitivity to the human person prior to any other considerations. This is what forms the basis for his appeal to woman to reconcile humanity with life. And I can do no better way to end than to read what it is that he says in this appeal. This is from the Gospel of Life. In transforming cultures so that it supports life, Women occupy a place in thought and in action which is unique and decisive. It depends on them to promote a new feminism which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of the life of society and to overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. Making my own the words of the concluding message of the Second Vatican Council, I address to women this urgent appeal, reconcile people with life. You are called to bear witness to the meaning of genuine love, of that gift of self, and of that acceptance of others which are present in a special way in the relationship of husband and wife, but which ought to also be at the heart of every other interpersonal relationship. The experience of motherhood makes you acutely aware of the other person at the same time confers on you a particular task. Motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life as it develops in the woman's womb. 
This unique contact with the new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude toward human beings, not only towards her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks the woman's personality. A mother welcomes and carries in herself another human being, enabling it to grow inside her, giving it room and respecting it in its otherness. Women first learn and then teach others that human relations are authentic if they are open to accepting the other person. A person who is recognized and loved because of the dignity which comes from being a person and not from other considerations such as usefulness, strength, intelligence, beauty, or health. This is the fundamental contribution which the church and humanity expect from women, and it is the indispensable prerequisite for an authentic cultural change. That's great praise and a great task and an urgent appeal. All right. I put just a short bibliography together for folks. Sister Prudence Allen, who I referred to, is uh, one of these women who is a genius, who has the feminine genius as well. She's really the driving force behind Endow. And her work on what's known as the concept of woman, the study of woman as woman's been experienced and used and exploited and whatnot in history is just amazing. This is one of her books. It's just the first of at least two, maybe there's three. This is the concept of woman from the Aristotelian Revolution to 1250 A.D., so if that doesn't intimidate you, (laughs) you're welcome to pick it up. There's a couple of books in here that touch on issues which I'm sure are, you know, issues that many of us have, namely things like the ordination of women and why it is that the church considers herself unable to change that. Benedict Ashley touches on that in his book, Justice in the Church. Sarah Butler does a great little synthesis. This is a recent book that came out called The Catholic Priesthood and Women, A Guide to the Teaching of the Church. A couple of documents from John Paul II, his great letter on the role of the Christian family in the modern world. These are things which I can't encourage families enough to read. These weren't written for theologians. These were written for families to read and to put into practice in their lives. There's a great letter to families. There's a letter to women. And this document on the role of the Christian family in the modern world is, uh, is really wondrous. Father Francis Martin wrote a book called The Feminist Question, which is really a, a great look at feminist theology in light of Christian tradition. Michelle Schumacher, who's a, an excellent writer, has put together, this is a, a collection of different essays and whatnot entitled Women in Christ Toward a New Feminism. Edith Stein, who's really a hero of the 20th century, one of the great minds of the 20th century. She was uh, martyred in Auschwitz. She was a convert. She was a Jewish woman who became a Catholic Carmelite nun and uh, dies in the gas chambers. Her book, Woman, is quite good. There's lots of different things that you might want to look at. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 755. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Father John Ricardo, a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and host of the Christ is the Answer radio program. Father Ricardo is a holy priest and a gifted presenter, and we're excited to welcome him as the speaker for the August 5th Summer Speaker Series event at the Irving Convention Center, benefiting the Guadalupe Radio Network. For more information about the event and to purchase your tickets, please visit summerspeakerseries.com. That's Summer Speaker Series. I am the bread of life. You who come to me shall not hunger, and who believe in me shall not thirst. No one can come to me. Unless the Father beckons And I will raise you up
Use my flesh for the life of the world And if you eat of this bread You shall live forever You shall live forever And I will raise you KATH 910 AM listeners are invited to participate in an online auction supporting the Tri-Parish Fundraiser for St. John's Catholic Church in Bridgeport. The online auction begins Saturday, June 19th at 8 AM. The community is also invited to join the parish for a picnic that begins before the silent auction. Auction items include designer handbags, a fishing trip for two, one-week timeshare in Cabo, and a gas grill. To participate and for more information, visit jbdcatholics.org. Victory Investment Strategies is a sponsor of KATH 910 AM. They pray for continued blessing on all who make Catholic Radio possible in North Texas. The unique programming is vital to our daily lives. Victory Investment Strategies is a full-service investment firm owned by Joel and Elizabeth Victory, members of St. Patrick Cathedral in Fort Worth. They offer a variety of products and will custom-fit a plan for your individual needs. 800-810-6800. 800-810-6800. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Project Joseph, Healing for Men in the Year of St. Joseph, is a Zoom conference for anyone. 
clergy or laity, male or female, who is interested in men's healing after abortion and will be presented on Sunday, June 27th at 7 p.m. Learn how men can regain their peace of mind after an abortion experience, even if it's been years. Go to projectjosephdallas.org and click on the anonymous Zoom button. The pain after abortion is real. So is the help. Project Joseph.